and welcome to another edition of the Global Liberty Alliance podcast coming to you from Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C., uh, with our friends over in the, uh, in the federal, federal government. We're over here comfortably in the Commonwealth, and today we have a special guest who's joining us, I think, from Puerto Rico, but we'll ask her that in a minute. Uh, this is a show I've been wanting to do for a while because not only have I known Maria, we're allowed for a long time, uh, probably almost uh, two decades now. Maria has been on the forefront of uh, documenting and studying uh, a lot of horrible things, but does it in a way that makes it accessible to people who do not understand or have not been exposed to the subject matter. And Right now, she's at, uh, running the organization she helped start almost 21 years ago, uh, the Free Society Project, also known as Cuba Archive. Uh, we will post uh, links at the bottom of the podcast site for you to visit. I encourage you to visit, learn about this uh, worthwhile project, and support it. Maria, she's an analyst, consultant, has uh, published uh, many uh, studies and publications on Cuban affairs. I uh, used to work over at Chase Manhattan. She was a uh, vice president there for a while. She has a bachelor's from Georgetown's uh, School of Foreign Service and a master's in international relations from the University of Chile. Uh, her latest book, by the way, I think you all should buy it. I'm going to give you all a link to this. It's called Cuba's Intervention in Venezuela, a Strategic Occupation with Global Implications. We're going to talk about that book and a whole bunch of other uh, items today. So Maria, where are you? Hi, I'm in lovely old San Juan, Puerto Rico. Okay. At an amazing blue ocean. I feel very blessed to be here during, especially during the pandemic. Okay. Have um, you been out, have you been out there? Uh, I know you spent a lot of time in Miami also, but have yes. you spent most of the time in the, in, in Puerto Rico? Actually, I wish I did be, because I love it here, but no, I spent most of the time in Miami or traveling. Yeah, but I right. really like it here. Uh, I came, my family came to Puerto Rico when I was nine years old, or eight years old, about to be nine. And I lived in the coast of uh, the West Coast in Mayaguez until I went to college. And my mom stayed there. So I have family. My mom died, but, you know, I still have family there. And so this is kind of home for me. And mm. I was away for many years. But then after she died, I came back to get you know, settle with the house and stuff. And then I decided to take her artwork and books and furniture and whatever and try Old San Juan. And I just love it here. That's good. And the food's yeah. great. Yeah. And the people are wonderful. Yeah. I and mean, the island has been through its troubles, like, you know, a lot of uh, places now. But on top of it, they've had the hurricane to, uh, almost three years ago now. Mm -hmm. And then they're having um, problems with the uh, tremors in the south there was one last night so it's not without its issues they're technically bankrupt um but it's a it's a nice thing and uh it also reminds me of cuba my husband says it smells like cuba um i left cuba when i was eight seven months old so and i've only been one once so i don't really you know know cuba that well in that sense but um it's more to the roots i like it here that's great. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Cuba because guess what? That's the big topic today. What a surprise. Um, and Cuba Island and trouble. What can I tell you? They're all combined into one there. And you're, before we get into the trouble, though, what, because uh, I want, our, I want our, our listeners to understand what led you, because I know the story, but I want them to hear it. What drove you to start 
uh, the Free Society Project and, and Cuba Archive because there's a wonderful story behind that. And also there's a lot of people who were around when you started the organization who are no longer with us. And I'd like you to mention them briefly if you could. That's wonderful. Yes, how did this start? Um, when I lived in Chile, I lived in Chile for seven years up until 93. And I witnessed the, Pino, the end of the Pinochet regime, the last three years of Pinochet, the plebiscite and the new democratic government. It was a very interesting time. I also did my master's there, made very close friends in different um, socioeconomic and political sectors and got a real taste for Chile. I love that place. And uh, I took that experience, you know, to heart to uh, when we came back to New York, um, we, we were expats. My ex-husband was a banker. Uh, I had left the bank and, and had uh, done my, my um, master's and then started a business there. Um, but so we came back to New York and I was um, started to get involved again in the Cuba sort of Cuba exile movement. I had been president of the Cuban Students Association, Cuban American Students wow, Association okay. at Georgetown. So, you know, we, we did lecture series and I was, you know, every, at the School of Foreign Service, every opportunity I had to write a research paper, I picked Cuba because I wanted to learn about Cuba. My mom had been so traumatized by what had happened and, you know, the death of my father and everything that when we moved to Puerto Rico, she sort of like, wanted to forget so I was and we were in Mayagüez where there were no Cubans so that was actually very healthy mentally and emotionally but I wanted to get back to my roots and what had happened and you know I always say that Cuba is in every cell of my body you know because I was procreated in the midst of this uh, crisis and you know everything that my family lived so when we when I came back to the U.S. and I started to get into the human rights movement and to help the cause which I had never abandoned by the way since I was at Georgetown, um, I realized that the way that the Cuban American community or the Cuban exile community all over the world was portraying the issue was missing an essential element that had been really important in Chile, which is uh, knowledge of the victims, a more personal account of the tragedy that was Cuba that is all encompassing, let's say. I mean, I think every human right is violated in Cuba. But I thought, but in the Chile case, the cases that were more prominent worldwide that created more empathy and, um, you know, let's say public relations were the ones related to the deaths and disappearances. Everybody talked about that. Everybody talked about the Pinochet regime, uh, this terrible regime that, that uh, killed and disappeared people. In the Cuba case, I knew the situation was much worse than the Chilean one. Yet we didn't have the, you know, the knowledge of the world, the recognition of what had happened or what continued to happen in, in Cuba. So I had a colleague at the Association for the Study of the Cuban Economy, Armando Lago. I don't know if you ever right. met him. Yeah. He used oh, yeah. to live in the Washington, D.C. area. A brilliant guy. He was an econo uh, economist uh, who was an expert in econometrics and had its consulting uh, business there and was president of the association and a very funny guy and we used to get along really well. So sadly he had a stroke and yeah. he had to sell his business and he was paralyzed, you know, part of his body. So he was, you know, sitting depressed at home and um, Ricardo Bofil, who many people feel was, you know, one of the founders of the human rights movement within Cuba and 
was then in exile, told him, hey, Armando, why don't you write the book about the killings of the Castro regime? <clears throat> and Armando said, what a great idea. So I told him, oh my God, I've been trying to convince people in the Cuban American community to do that, to focus on the victims. So that's how this partnership started. Armando started to write his book, The Cost and Lives of the Cuban Revolution, which I feel I have a, a big debt to because I told him we would publish it, but it changed so much in terms of, you know, when you did the investigation, the numbers were completely different. Right. So let's say this project is Armando's book <coughs> dynamically. Every day we have Armando's book out there. Um, we're putting this story together. So he continued to do his research. I started to help him. My mother started to help him and we decided to set up an organization, the Free Society Project with a bigger mission to do more projects, but this one was the main one. To document deaths and disappearances because as Armando was collecting information, I knew this had to be, you know, multimedia. You know, the internet was starting, you know, mass communications were different. He was very limited in his movement. So we needed to put this story together. And that's how this started. Well, that's a great story. And before we jump into Cuba Archive, I want to go back to something you just said, because I think that's central in all of these projects. In fact, in Pinochet, I'd be curious on your views on that. And we'll get into that in a minute. But knowing the victim, I think that's uh, putting a human face. Uh, one of the, in, I mean, if anybody here is ever listening to this has been to the Holocaust Museum here in Washington, D.C. If you've never been to the Holocaust Museum, you should go. But the, one of the most striking parts of that visit is being able to go to that pavilion where you can sit there and actually see actual cases of people who died in the Holocaust and victims, and you have testimonials from a lot of them. And you've kind of started to do that. I mean, that's what your project does. You can go online, go to your database, search it, look up names. And you also encourage people uh, who had loved ones maybe who were jailed, imprisoned, tortured, or had some type of a wrong against them to, to file uh, paperwork and document cases so you can keep the archive going. How, how difficult has it been and has it become a little easier now? Because we're both from Cuban backgrounds. You were born in Cuba. As a, I think you left as a very young child, I think. And um, I wasn't born there, but I was brought into the issue, of course, through my family and growing up in South Florida and staying involved with this aspect of it. What is the hardest part? Because I remember in my household, this is not something that you really talked about. And it's not the easiest of subject. In fact, it's not a very pleasant subject, but I think it's essential. And you have to make an effort to document it because if you don't, uh, what happens? I mean, things can happen again, but also there's a process, I guess Cuba will go through someday, which we'll talk about later about transition justice and what that means and the different types of justice. But what did it mean when you, when you all launched this, what was the most difficult part and what is it today that makes it challenging because you have a phenomenal database, but what's next? Yeah. Well, wow, that's a, a interesting question. And I don't, you know, I, when I look at this project, I like to focus on the good aspects of it uh, because that's what energizes me. But it's an interesting thing um, because oftentimes when I'm feeling really down because it has been very difficult and we can get into that, uh, I call, I do an interview with a family member to document something. I don't have time these days to do that as much, but we do have contact with people who contact us because they learn that, you know, 
they had somebody who died, did we have them in the database or they send us information and then we engage, that energizes me. Interestingly, it has a very big emotional cost. It's almost like you being an emergency room doctor and seeing this uh, thing going on, you know, people suffering um, because that's what moves us. But, but there's a big emotional cost to hear the stories of all these atrocities and injustices that by far, by far exceed what Pinochet did to the Chilean people. And we can get into that later if there's time. Um, by far exceeds in scope, in numbers, in, atro in levels of atrocity, I think. And yet to see you know, the world uh, welcome, you know, support, and give credibility to the dictatorship that remains in power that has committed all these crimes against humanity and these terrible injustices to, that have affected so many lives. That's the hardest part, the frustration of seeing that. Um, but, but again, that's what moves us to continue. Yeah. Well, oftentimes, I, yeah, I would have I, wanted to abandon this and I said, no, no. no, I, no and I, and I, I know you never have, and let me tell you, I've known Maria for a while and she, She's dogged in this. She's committed to it. Uh, she's put together a, you know, her and her team at times, uh, as she said, uh, um, on fumes at times, but always committed to the higher purpose of uh, documenting this. Because it's, it's important, you know, from a transitional justice standpoint, well, from a truth and memory standpoint, it's a huge, uh, it's needed. It's a, it's, a, it's a resource. I hope that in the future, the people of Cuba will use uh, for whatever they decide will be their, their journey through democracy, which they will someday reach that point, it's it's going to be an invaluable tool. But also, from a transitional justice standpoint, too, uh, having uh, the meticulous data collected the way you've all done it, uh, the standards that you use, some countries that have gone through difficult times uh, haven't had resources like this, and that's a very challenging part of co cobbling together what transitional justice will look like. Is it going to be truth-seeking, reparations, reform, criminal prosecutions, a combination of all that? It starts with information, it starts with victims, it starts with people talking about difficult subject matter. And you have a team there that you've assembled that has helped put together a resource that I hope uh, people will look at and use. Uh, we're, we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, we're gonna come back. And we're going to pick up with Maria Werlau from the Free Society Project, uh, Cuba Archive. Talk a little bit about Chile, because I think she uh, said something a few times that caught my attention, I'm sure caught my listeners' attention, about that comparison between what happened during the Pinochet period. And a lot of people today still argue about that process, that transitional process. And there are still cases ongoing or trying to bring cases ongoing against uh, folks involved with that government and on the outside of that government. I want Maria's views on that, and then get a little deeper into what she's working on now at Cuba Archive and in her other projects. We'll be right back. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no 
minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. And this is Jason Poblet again with the Global Liberty Alliance here with Maria Werlau, who is over in sunny Puerto Rico, and I'm over in sunny Commonwealth of Virginia, but without the beaches. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for spending time with us talking about your project, uh, Free Society Project, Cuba Archive. Before we took the break, you spoke about Chile, a beautiful country that I visited and studied, uh, especially because of the subject matter you're discussing. Tell us a little bit about why the Cuba case has such a difficult time gaining traction, I guess, in popular media or popular culture, even in the global human rights space. But Pinochet and his his government, which was it was a they were tough. It was a tough regime that committed human rights abuses. But what is the difference between those two? You live part of it. And do you think there's been complete justice for all victims in Chile? in that period? Well, that's two, two big questions. You know, what's, what's so different between the two and the thing on justice? Let me, let me split that answer to you um, right now. There's a lot of differences between the Cuba case and the Chilean case. Uh, first and foremost, the Chilean case was adopted by not just freedom lovers and democracy lovers, but by the left of the world, and it was promoted, uh, funded, etc., cetera, uh, including, you know, with Cuba's efforts uh, for many years. It, and secondly, the Pinochet regime never dedicated the resources, not even close, that Cuba dedicates to its intelligence services, it, to influence and penetration around the world, and to the huge propaganda apparatus that Fidel Castro built very quickly. So it's completely different. I mean, Cuba, if anything, if anything I could say that has been an achievement of, you know, the Castro dictatorship, it is how it has effectively managed propaganda and influence around the world. It's stunning. That's right. It's stunning how they've done it. And that's why I wrote the book on Cuba's intervention on Venezuela, because it's almost unbelievable. Something that comes out of your book, by the way, which is, it's, it's almost as if, they punch way above their size. I mean, they, they've managed to corner that. Um, and it's, there are many reasons why they could do it, but it does come across in your book that they punch above their weight and yeah. they have, they, they do it. They have achieved the notoriety uh, that uh, Chile uh, never did, frankly. And that, that was never really, that was never really Pinochet's aim anyhow, but he had other aims which we'll talk about later, but you're right. right. But, yeah. but Cuba's feet is like, I mean, it's hard to imagine any comparison to it. An island of 11 million, you know, 6 million when Castro came to power, mm. totally underdeveloped right now and constantly less and less developed because it's poorer and poorer. A parasite state that, you know, depended first on the Soviet Union and, and now on Venezuela and on the exploitation of its own people. That's how the government survives now through the medical missions and the export workers and the remittances of the people that they forced to emigrate. And, you know, this little regime in, in, in the Caribbean 
has been able to pull this off. And, you know, of course, my book is a summary of what I would like to write more about because I've spent many years studying, you know, Cuba's methodology of repression and have visited many of the former Soviet bloc countries that used the same kind of training from the KGB, et cetera. But it is pretty impressive. So Pinochet was never close, but to have an idea, Pinochet's regime officially killed and disappeared 3,187 people. That's right. Uh, That's the rough official <clears throat> number, yeah. That's the official number, yeah. you know, vetted by several, um, two commissions, truth commissions, etc. which is, you know, every life is important, okay? And I right. always say the Cuba Archive Project is not about numbers, although people always want numbers. And we've only documented to date, like, almost 7,800 cases for the Castro regime because we document cases on all sides of the political spectrum for both the Castro uh, dictatorship and the Batista dictatorship. Uh, because what we wanted to do is document the loss of life, the cost and lives of this revolutionary process that Cuba has lived. So imagine, I mean, and, and when you start counting Cuba's just in death and disappearances to compare it to the Chilean regime, when you start to grow that, first of all, the many undocumented cases, especially people who've died uh, trying to leave the island, who have disappeared, uh, a number of those cases will, will have been killed by Cuban border guards. It's going to be interesting to see if the files are ever recovered, uh, the archives, to see what really happened uh, to a lot of the people who died uh, and who never showed up after yeah. leaving in a raft. Okay, a lot of them might have drowned or eaten by sharks, et cetera, but a good number will have been killed by Cuban border guards that systematically executed people, and we have a number of um, documented cases on that. Before we jump into those numbers again, and, and we'll, 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 so we can just leave Chile aside right now, we're, we're going get to get right back to that. So why do you think, for the listener who knows nothing about the Chile versus Cuba phenomena, why do you think everyone in popular culture says Pinochet is a demon, Fidel Castro is a saint. Yeah, the dictator, like the New York Times, you know, dictator <laughs> yeah, right. and President Fidel Castro. I mean, that's just because, because Cuba has been able to work systematically with huge resources, not just on propaganda, but in infiltrating and penetrating governments, uh, newspapers, uh, academic institutions, the U.S. You know, government, the post office, yeah. you know, the U.S. government, the U.S. Senate, the State Department. It's impressive. I mean, and they do this all over the world. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had time to write my second book. You will. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll have time for it. <laughs> that subject fascinates me. I've interviewed a bunch of defectors and happened to live with one uh, from Cuban intelligence. And I, I thought I knew about that. But these testimonies are incredible. They, they, are, they, they are incredible, uh, and it's 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 kind of uh, sad in a way that people have to live in that program state because they use the island to their advantage because they have developed a very wicked way to almost brainwash people, and it's very difficult to break from that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, especially in some of the work you're doing with the medical workers, with the as I like the way you call it a parasite state. You've used that term before, and. The numbers, going back to your numbers, because, again, it's important to stress every life matters. But why is it important? Because this, is, this goes to the heart of your project, to actually be able to document. But also, in fact, when you talk to some other people on the island who've 
attempted to do some of this sort of work. It's not easy, as you know, to do this sort of work. There's people like Elizardo Sanchez Santa Cruz and some others who've done some documenting also, and some many other human rights groups. Amata Batiz Roque does documenting, but but you you give it another dimension. You you're and you've and, and it's clear when you look at the database and you look at the different search parameters and you look at the way you've couched it. We look at not only Cuba, you look at the revolutionary process because Fidel Castro just didn't spontaneously appear in 1959. This was coming. It was coming for a while. He just happened to be the one who was able to exploit it. But why is it so important that we don't get too hung up right now on total numbers? And uh, why should somebody even dedicate, let's say if, if somebody's listening to this and they know that their grandmother, their grandfather, and uncle uh, suffered a human rights abuse, never documented it, why should they just go out of their way, fill that form out? For many reasons. First of all, because it's a necessary part of the history of Cuba and of the world. I mean, that if we don't learn from our history, then we'll repeat the same mistakes, as you know. That, mm. and, it, and, it, and it is true. I think to honor those victims, the least we could do is remember them. When at any time that I feel like really down on this work, because there's been many difficulties with it uh, in all these years, uh, I think of that army of souls. I mean, I'm mm. a person of faith. And I really do think that that army of souls has helped us move forward because this story deserves to be told. And as I said, in the numbers, it's really important because it by far exceeds the, the killings and disappearances of the Pinochet regime, especially when you start to see how Cuba was a promoter, financer, sponsor of subversion and terrorism around the world, especially in Latin America. I mean, we're counting hundreds of thousands of deaths that could be attributed to this regime. And we're only starting. Yeah, and it and continues, by the way, it hasn't ended. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's what I'm, I was gonna say, because this story continues. This regime, it's not just that the regime that committed these crimes starting in 59 is there, it's that they continue to commit these crimes. That's right. And right now, right, we're seeing people in the prisons. I mean, this is a situation that is very difficult to document. We've had two experiences in recent months where you know prisoners who have called and have reported deaths in the prison have been um, severely punished, and you know they're still doing it. I mean, some people are still willing to give you know, the reports. Yeah, uh, human rights activists willing to give it. It's pretty amazing. And, and, you know, I'm struck by that, Maria, because I represented hostages not just in Cuba but in other countries uh, or unlawfully imprisoned persons and. I think it's worth mentioning to folks listening to this who may have loved ones in that dire situation, not just in Cuba, but in any country, how important it is to, to bear witness to that, to talk about it. In rare cases, and every case is different, uh, would we counsel families to stay quiet? Because if you stay quiet, in most cases, it only delays uh, the release and delays uh, justice and, uh, frankly, evil is scared of sunshine. They don't like it. And, and when you bring attention to it, uh, the political prisoner issue in Cuba, I know is a hotly debated one. Some people say there's a few, some people say there's a lot. A lot of it depends on how you define it. But anyone who's unlawfully in prison uh, sh uh, should speak up if, uh, if the case facts warrant it. And there are a lot of decisions you go into uh, considering before you do something like that. But it's an important point that you bear witness to that. Would you say that that's the case mostly that you should be speaking up, especially when you're in Cuba, stuck in one of these prisons? I think it's, 
I, I question myself on that because, you know, I don't have that situation. I'm sheltered from that. And, and I wonder, you know, I can't, I can't speak to whether, they, to whether that should happen or not. I know it happens. And when I tell the activists from the island, I said, but I don't want to get people in trouble because we've been really careful over the years with this. Like we've only received information, never requested it. But since the situation in the prisons, especially in the last year, seems to be so dire and nobody talks about that, right. Cuba has done something very smart. They, the political prisoners are a certain number. You know, you could say, you know, if you use the strict definition of political prisoner, I think in the Cuban case, it deserves to be amended, but it's like 140, you know, so you don't have people advocating for Cuba's political prisoners that much. And then, but you have tens of thousands serving for, for what I consider is the political situation. Uh, and that completely forgotten, then you have to alert the world. And, right. and the activists always tell me, don't worry, you know, they know what they're doing. You know, you know this it's, it's, not it's, what's, what's interesting about that you just said there is that they become, and you probably have studied this a lot, over the years, they become the Cuban police state has become a lot more sophisticated in how they do persecution. So, right. uh, at the earlier on, at the earlier part of the revolution, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was tended to be a lot more abrupt and violent. It was like a big purging they did, and there were a lot of arrests. And then eventually, after the Cold War, they started to develop this system where they uh, start to intimidate the police show up. They cite you to the police station. They start playing mind games on you. They'll put out the rapid response teams. It's almost to put the psychological pressure to build up to see how far they can push you, break you. When you end up in jail, it's pretty. The it's not that's not the beginning of your of your problems. You've already been intimidated, harassed. In some cases, uh, they they try and drive you insane. In some cases, according to some of the dissidents I've talked to in Cuba, how sophisticated has it become? Excessively. Yeah, I know. No, you hit on something that's really important to understand. Cuba followed the pattern of the former Soviet bloc countries. In the beginning, you have mass executions to, to, to create terror in the population. Uh, and then you had also tens of um, thousands of political prisoners. It's hard to tell. We have a report on that, uh, of the literature and the review but you know, you could say that at the at the, at the peak, you could you had like fifty thousand. I, I can't remember exactly death. I, I think this was in a report from the Stasi, from the files of the Stasi. It's the best thing that I've found in terms of numbers because yeah, you're this right. Is a secret. We'll, yeah, we'll put a link up. We'll put a link Cuba. up to some of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, by the way, our site is cubaarchive.org. And this report is in the sections we have, the Truth and Memory Project is the one we're talking about. And there's a section on reports. And that's a really interesting report that has some of the bibliography on, you know, why it's so hard to know how many political prisoners there are in Cuba. But today, as I said, the, the Cuban government has refined the definition of persecution. So now in Cuba, for many years in the penal code, you have this thing called pre-criminal social dangerousness which means that the state can actually put you in prison for years because somebody you are propensed to, or you have the proclivity to commit a crime. And that crime is anything that attempts against the socialist state. Imagine that. And there's thousands of, especially young men, because they don't have a job, they get put in prison to take them off the streets. 
Yeah, in fact, if, 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 if you want, for those of you who haven't seen Tom Cruise's Minority Report, and you want to understand the Department of Pre-Crime, that's what Maria is basically talking about. They have a system in place where they know how to identify people by certain behaviors. And it's not, of course, that high-tech uh, movie-like thing, but it's exactly what they do. That's just a Hollywood version of what Cuba does. It's, it's a pre-crime unit that figures out certain type of people who say certain things, who act a certain way, either have to be brainwashed and reprogrammed, and if that doesn't work and they become political, the subtle persecution begins. And if that doesn't work, you're jailed. If, that does, if, if you don't die in jail, and let me tell you, those are some of the most difficult phone calls uh, I ever received from the island, are people who manage to get their hands on a phone and talk to you and tell you what they're going through. It is harrowing experiences and they wanna crack you. And if that doesn't work or you die and they try and throw you out of the country, if you don't wanna leave, and you stay and you manage to survive, the cycle viciously begins over and over and over again. Correct. I mean, they, this is studied. I mean, this is, they learn how to do this. That's this right. is very sophisticated. These young men are taken off the streets, not even because they're political, because they could become a nuisance or they could become political. And the political prison, the, the, the dissidents, let's say the activists, human rights activists, are then thrown in, in, in prison for having you know a piece of beef which is an economic crime or for whatever a bag of cement or for whatever reason so those are economic crimes so what i'm saying is the definition of political imprisonment in cuba is is very specific but let me tell you one thing that a lot of americans don't know um thinking if we have a particular report on this we do have a case in a report on u.s citizens killed by cuba Okay, hold, Maria, hold that one second. We're going to pick up right there when we come back. So we'll pick up with the political prisoner issue, but with U.S. citizens killed in Cuba. Talk to Maria Warlau with Free Society Project on the Parasite State. We'll be right back. And we're back. So before we took that break, Maria, you were talking about U.S. citizens that or victims of the, uh, of, of, the, of the Cuban regime. We'll get into that a little yeah. bit, and then let's talk a lot more about the parasite state, Cuban medical workers, and labor situation in Cuba. But what's this about Americans? A lot of Americans have no idea beyond the property issue. Americans have died yeah. at the hands of this government. Right, we have a report um, from updated September 2018 that I don't think we have new cases in there documented, but a 48 documented cases of US citizens killed or disappeared by the communist regime. One of those cases I was going to highlight is Earl Cobiel. Uh, he was a pilot in Vietnam, a uh, US pilot, a POW, Earl Glenn Cobiel, age 36, uh, that was sent to the Heartbreak Prison in North Vietnam. And there's a book that talks about this. Uh, I don't remember the title of the book, I, and we have it. Um, so this man was put in this uh, prison and they brought in Cubans to implement a vicious experimental domination technique of physical and tor psychological torture led by Cuban agents and was tested on 18 US POWs held at that prison in 1967 and 68. And this man died. I mean, his story is horrible because he survived for like two years and then he was last seen in 74. Uh, he was from Michigan. 
and we have his photograph there. So what I'm saying is Cuba is even exporting its experts in uh, repression and, and sophisticated techniques. And I know, you know, when the Soviet bloc was still operational under the Soviet Union, that they would send their counterintelligence officers to train in the Stasi University for a year. Do you uh, think that Do you think that uh, Venezuela, their prison system or their intelligence services has been compromised by the Cubans? And do the Cubans get involved in jailing and interrogation there? I not only think my book has, I think, a lot of evidence. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a trick question. So go ahead yeah. and t t t tell listeners about what Cuba's doing, that kind of export that they took to Venezuela. Yes, which is why, you know, they've been so successful there. Well, the first thing they did is, of course, they took over different aspects of the government. I, the book describes how Cuba did this, this, what I call an asymmetric occupation of Venezuela. But an essential part of that was taking over the security apparatus, let's say the armed forces, and, and then the counterintelligence service, and then military intelligence. So they have Cuban officers there. They send Venezuelans to train in Cuba. You know, the Cubans supervise this whole thing in Venezuela. It's very well done. It's to the point of, you know, the paramilitary uh, motorcycle gangs. Right. Those were Fomenta created, sponsored, and trained in Cuba and by Cuba and the FARC, by the way, and the Iranians too. But, yep. you know, I describe all of that. The, the book, by the way, is available on, on Amazon in English and Spanish. And if you put my last name, Warlau, W-E-R-L-A-U, it should show up. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll give people a link. And, yeah. you know, the, the, what I learned about your book and uh, some research that I did after that is that even their, their political prisons or their high-profile prison in, in Venezuela are most of them overseen. If not, you know, they don't manage it day to day, but they're overseen. And the tactics they use in interrogation the 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 cruel psychological torture they know how to inflict without leaving evidence which is by the way something they have learned to do so they can uh, hide uh, the abuse as best they can it is being led by the cuban government and and the regime is pretty much given a free pass and i, I hope that the venezuelan people are free of that but i hope i encourage uh, listeners to read maria's book because they'll learn a whole lot about that process but let's talk a little bit about the parasite state because you've done also a lot of work on uh, Cuban medical diplomacy, as they call it. But this is an interesting uh, facet of, of the Cuban state. Let's, for, our, for our listeners, let's just re, uh, give you a summary. The Cuban government is pretty much controlled by the Communist Party. It's, it's a regime, not a government. And everything is underneath that huge umbrella, including the economy. So in Cuba, you basically have no rights to decide how you want to work. So they kind of choose it for you. You're groomed for certain things. There is uh, some pathways to get to do certain type of work, but you're groomed for certain type of work. The crown jewel of the Communist Party's moneymaker now, of course, is medical workers. And Maria's written a lot about this. But it's important to understand that it's not a free economy and that the way you are treated in that system is you're almost like a cog, forced labor, trafficking in persons, the medical sector especially, but it also happens in the tourism sector. It happens in the hotels. So when you walk, so those people who've gone to Cuba, stayed at a Cuban hotel, those people are not uh, free workers. They do not have the right, they should have the right, but they don't to uh, uh, gainful employment wherever they want to work. Uh, the state takes care of everything for you from cradle to grave. That's why the island is the mess it's in. Maria, this medical mission, what is, you know, for, for someone who's never heard about medical diplomacy, 
how is it different from what American doctors do? I mean, American doctors travel the world, donate their time. They give away their services. They never get credit. Cuba seems to be everywhere all the time. How does an island of so many uh, doctors are supposedly get so much notoriety for this type of work? This started um, in 1960. The Castro government came to power January 59. Already in mid-1960, if I remember correctly, it was May. I'm not sure exactly yeah, the, you're right. the year. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. was the first medical brigade was sent to Chile after an earthquake. That's and right. it was led by Salvador Allende, who was, who was uh, always in the Cuba fray, um, and then became the president of Chile that ended up in the coup by Pinochet. Uh, that was the first medical brigade. And then there was uh, another one sent to Algeria to help during the Polisario uh, fight there. And Fidel Castro realized that it was a great formula to, first of all, infiltrate agents to monitor the home country, to influence the, the, the discourse, the, pro, the propaganda, the image of the Cuban regime, try to clean it up. Uh, you know, it was a dictatorship. Remember, at the time, they were shooting people massively and incarcerating tens of thousands. So he needed a way to clean up the image of the regime. And he knew uh, or felt that anybody who gets free health becomes either loyal to the regime or at least will not challenge it. Uh, because the, you know, it's a hu very human condition to be grateful. Even if you buy somebody a Coke, I mean, I've read about yeah, right. experiments, how people you know, are, are grateful in that sense, it's, it, but especially if you give them help. And if you've had a family member who's ever been sick and in the hospital and stuff, I think you can understand that why you would do anything for that person. You know, the health is really important. So they started to send these, you know, doctor slaves that uh, are hired out. This is an export temporary labor force. Uh, they're hired out to companies and to governments to fill in uh, for where there's needs. For example, you know, in the jungle, in, in dangerous places where local uh, doctors don't want to go or need more money to go or whatever, uh, they can send Cubans because Cubans have to do what they say and go where they say. So this formula works like that, but it's also a way to influence the, the politics of the, of the country. For example, in Venezuela, they sent, starting in 2005, thousands. Like at, at one time, there were like 30,000 uh, Cubans in what they call the social missions. And they do political work at the same time that they're supposed to be delivering, you know, educational and social services. So, and it's a way that Cuba makes money. Uh, and and I, this caught my attention because I was asked to comment on a paper at a conference, academic conference uh, on economics on Venezuela. And, you know, I had accumulated information on this for, for years and put it into my huge library and stuff. And then I, when I, I was asked to do comment on the Doctors for Oil program, right. and I started to look at it and realize, oh, my God, this has become Cuba's main source of revenue. It's a lot of money. In fact, in, before, before we jump into the economics, just briefly, the, as I understand how it works, Maria, the, these people are conscripted and they're sent to a foreign country. They, the contracts are negotiated ahead of time by the state. They don't have a say in those contracts. I've seen a few of the contracts that the doctors signed, but they're contracts of adhesion, basically. They don't they take it or leave it, basically. And if you leave it, by the way, it's a, it's a check mark in your file that you are not a loyal revolutionary. But So first of all, it's not voluntary. They have to go on these missions. 
the the other part of it is they dilute so let's say they pay a hundred million bucks for one of these missions uh government to government transfer of funding the amount of money that goes to the worker is completely out of proportion to what they should be getting paid they still don't have a say in that plus when they're in this foreign country aren't they there with a minder from the party or from the intelligence services? Don't they take away their passport? I mean, what happens to the doctor, the nurse, the ther physical therapist, a dentist, when they're sent off on one of these missions? Yeah, so let me, let me give you some of the essentials, but there's a fact sheet on our website. Uh, if you go to the Cuba archive um, page, there's a project called Cuba Salud that has a, a 8.8, I think eight pages or more. It's more. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll give them a link. On, we'll on, the link on, on the mission so that people can see the data. And, uh, but it, essentially what it is, is the Cuban, the Cuban state or state entity, depending, it, it used to be more the Ministry of Health, but, but they formed a company called Comercializadora de Servicios Medicos. You know, that's a state entity. It doesn't matter. It's a Cuban state. Right. Hires out these workers. Um, not just, you know, it's construction brigades, musicians for cruise ships, um, tobacco rollers for hotels in the Bahamas, et cetera, et cetera. But the main one that they give most credit to is the health workers. And Cuba officially states that it's 75% of the export workforce. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they say. Um, it, it could be. But so what they do is they sign, they, they, and let me just clarify it. Most of these workers want to go. Uh, right. If you, I mean, it, right now they're forcing people to go to Venezuela, apparently, as you said, because the conditions there are so bad and they're going hungry, literally. But most of them want to go because and the average doctor in Cuba earns less than $70 a month and they can't feed their family. I mean, I've talked to them who've raised, you know, who raised chickens in their bathroom and, 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 or pigs or, you know, delivered things so in a bicycle to compensate for, for their meager salary. So, and, and in Cuba, health workers, like any, or like most other professionals, can only work for the state, which is completely controlled by the Cuban Communist Party. So, is, so why, do they, why do they take away their passports? Because they, a lot of them want to defect. So what happens is they, leave, they have to leave their families behind. Uh, and they sign a contract to go for two years to where X or Y, they're, you know, they're now in more than 70 countries. We have a map too that, that, that states where they are, the COVID brigades at least. Um, and uh, they have to leave their families so that they don't leave with their families. Um, and then they want to go because they, they, they then get a hard currency fund in a bank account in Cuba that they can retrieve if they complete the mission successfully. So it's kind of a way to lure them back so yeah. that they, they can fix the roof of their house or buy an appliance or, you know, something outrageous. That so, why, and so, so why send, and so in addition to that, it sounds to me like it's, it's almost extortion-like, but what, what, what happens then? It if it's you're against in one the law. I mean, that, that, that to begin with, the, the wage confiscation, which is up to 95% in some countries, is completely against the ILO convention. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, International Labor Organization. Yeah, so that's, that's against the law. But, but on top of it, then, they're submitted to vigilance, complete supervision and monitoring by these state agents that are intelligence mm. agents so that they don't defect. They're supposed to tell on their, on their peers if they think that they're going to do something wrong or defect. 
Um, they're subject to a number of arbitrary regulations, and this is in writing. I mean, I have some of these that they're given. You can't go out after a certain uh, time. You cannot do social life with the locals that are not revolutionaries. You cannot marry a local. You cannot go to another state. You can't get on a plane to go anywhere. You know, you can't even leave your city without permission. You cannot talk to the media, et cetera, et cetera. They're having to labor under terrible conditions. In Venezuela, for example, hundreds have been killed by criminals because they put them in, you know, the neighborhoods to monitor the situation. You know, the whole program was designed like that. But where they get raped, stolen, I mean, I've interviewed a number of these doctors. And in some countries, they are better off like in the um, Arab oil producing countries, uh, they have, you know, separate apartment and, you know, they can travel to the nearest city in a certain bus. You know, they're better off than they want to go there. Yep. It depends on the country. Yep. If anybody listening to this is from any country that has contracts with these workers, uh, the Cuban agencies, remember that you're engaging in trafficking or forced labor and there are repercussions for that under U.S. law for, and U.S. policy for doing that sort of thing. So and we're, oh, we're yeah. going we're to give some information to listeners as well about that later. The economics of it, because that's an important point that you mentioned, this is a significant source of revenue for the Cuban government. You've written uh, several op-eds about this, several studies about this. For those of you who don't know the Cuban economy, against the command economy, they have, they should have uh, an economy that generates wealth from tourism, from even potentially certain agricultural products, certain services that they have in the healthcare sector. But no, Cuba's main sources of income today are generally from two sources, these missions that Maria's talking about, and money they get from remittances, billions of dollars that we're talking about from both of these pots of money. How do they do this, Maria? No, no, it's, it's amazing. That's how I started to look into this, when I saw how much it had grown to be the main source of income for Cuba. Because they confiscate, you know, for example, you know, let's say Martinique that I was just looking at this week, uh, hires a mission, and then the Martinique government signs an agreement, a bilateral agreement with Cuba, and pays Cuba. Actually, in the case of Martinique, I think they are using a ruse like they've used in other cases uh, where they get, they, they, they want to say that they're paying the doctor directly, so they deposit it in an account in the doctor's name, and the doctor then is forced to remit the money to the Cuban state. But in most countries, it's directly mm. that, you know, the payment is done, so then Cuba then gives them what they earn in Cuba uh, and, and, and a per diem. Or, you know, the local government gives them a per diem so that they can feed themselves, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's, really, that's really, really sad. And um, we're going to have yeah. to take a, a break in a few minutes. And we're going to have another podcast on just Cuban medical workers because we just barely scratched the surface about this. But the takeaway is this is forced labor. It's wrong. These men and women should have a choice. A lot of them, frankly, are good people that just want to practice medicine. They, got, they, they became healers because they love the profession, they're noble people, they're good people, they shouldn't be treated this way, almost as if the Communist Party has found another way to weaponize something, and they've weaponized the practice of health, you know, the practice of medicine, which is really, really sad, and I don't believe it's a miracle, I don't believe Cuba has a miracle healthcare system, I believe it's quite the opposite, in fact, a lot of the people in Cuba would love some of these doctors to come home and be taking care of their own people first, and stop interfering in the domestic affairs of other countries by interfering, frankly, in the medical practice of these nations. A lot of doctors, Maria, briefly, before we take the break, 
a lot of doctors I've heard, doctor associations in countries in Latin America, for example, don't necessarily like these brigades to go in there without permission from the medical associations. Why do, this, why do these governments allow this? A lot, of, a lot of the governments allowing it are allies of Cuba. Mm -hmm. Either the government itself is allied or they have key people in the social, you know, in the Ministry of Health or whatever that are bringing the brigades in, um, you know, to get them in to, to, to help their ally. I mean, this is a kind of subsidy for the Cuban regime. Which it's is, about money. So they're all making money on crisis. this. Yeah, but it's more than that because it does have political influence. And these people go in there and then they give the patient, you know, the medicine and they say, oh, you know, Fidel or Chavez or your Dilma Josef or Evo Morales, you know, they're giving you this for free. You need to vote for them, et cetera, et cetera. And they also use these brigades to monitor things and to bring in agents. In the case of Bolivia, when uh, the government of Evo Morales was thrown out, or, mm. or he left or because he lost the election, it turns out that the new government discovered that a mission, an international medical mission of Cuba there of 702, only like 205 were doctors. The rest were doing political work yep. or we don't know. Political you know? work or spies. But, and yeah. we'll, again, we'll get, back to, we'll get back to all this at a future podcast. Once we come back, uh, we're going to wrap this up a little bit, but talk about a few things, including going back to the beginning of our discussion about Cuba archive, the importance of knowing the victim, humanizing these tragedies, telling these stories, what can we do in the future to help the Cuban people and other countries that deal with this difficulty? And what should we as Americans here who wanna get involved and help, why should we care? Why should we do this? And uh, how you can help uh, the Cuba archives. We'll be right back. Maria, thank you for staying on for one more segment I have imposed on you more than I thought I would, but uh, I knew this was going to be a longer podcast than the others because we were going to talk about a lot of subjects and we need to talk about a lot more because these are very important topics. So as, as we wrap up, let's go back to the beginning and focus a little bit on, on Pinochet. I know you had some concluding thoughts on that and then share with our, our listeners what can they do? What, what is out there that uh, somebody who maybe is not exposed to this issue, why should Americans and other listeners care about this and how can they help? Yeah, well, what I wanted to finish off about the Pinochet regime in insisting is the Pinochet regime never murdered children or mm. civili un unarmed civilians attempting to flee. That's right. uh, we have in Cuba a situation like the Berlin Wall exactly like the Berlin Wall surrounding the Guantanamo base, mm -hmm. where you have border guards shooting at Cubans who try to leave the island through the base. To, yeah, Cuban, the Cuban, yeah, the Cuban border yeah, guards, that's the right. Cuban yeah. border guards are yeah. shooting people where there's a minefield. I mean, it's exactly like the Berlin Wall. I've, I've had this, you know, people draw, draw it for me that have tried, that have been through that experience. And uh, that, you know, we have, sharpshooters shooting at people. This is happening now. There's a wall in the bay. I, we have a report on that. It's very frustrating to, to, to know that the world doesn't know about this. And that, you know, when you talked about what are the, were the hardest things for us, the hardest things for us is for people to realize how important it is to alert the world, uh, international organizations, governments, that this is going on and that it's not acceptable to treat the Cuban regime as a normal regime. It's a criminal regime, and here's the evidence. And this is not, and this is just 
part of it. You know, as you know, there's many angles of the Cuban situations where there's gross violations of human rights. Um, and to, to go back to your question about the Chile issue and justice, because this is at the heart of our transitional justice sort of educational um, process in terms of we've been learning for years about transitional justice, the different processes around the world, how it's been treated in certain countries vis-a-vis -vis others, what works, what doesn't work. And um, there are several things that are important now for us for this work. First, because telling these stories is healing to the victims, to the survivors, to the families, for their own emotional well-being. So right. it's not just mm -hmm. for historic memory. It's very good for victims to know there's somebody who cares. Those are the most rewarding moments for me when I talk to a family member. At times I'm crying on the phone and I say, I'll call you back, you know, mm -hmm. because it's so, so tragic and so unfair what they've lived. But it's very good. For example, it makes my day when somebody calls and says, oh, you know, my uncle, and we go to the database and we find it and they feel so, you know, that that's such a big deal and it's like comfort to them and that they know that this is being collected that these stories you know that these people's lives were not lost for for nothing that somebody cares that somebody's advocating for them and for their memory um so i think in the cuba case uh it's really important that people understand that we do this work in a way for future justice which is why a transitional justice period uh in cuba will need to go through the issue of establishing the truth about what happened. That's a necessary exactly. step, like yeah. it or not. But this is necessary also for the eventual societal reconciliation to deal with this process, to, 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 to plant the seed for a future process that will be healing and not violent, where the Cuban uh, people will overcome a tendency to resolve issues and political differences through violence. We want that to end. We want for the rule of law. So this aspect, this dark chapter of the Cuban history uh, needs to be uh, reconciled and, and, and assessed and dealt with productively so that we can move on to a better Cuba. And, and I think that's important for our, fo our colleagues here in the States to know that it's, it's, a shared, it's a shared sacrifice. A lot of Americans, as we've talked about today, had died and been tortured at the hands of this, of this regime. And it goes back to the beginning. I mean, there's still families, American families, for example, friends and colleagues of uh, the New Jersey State Troopers, Werner Forster and James Harper, who were assassinated uh, by Joanne Chesimard, who's still a fugitive hiding out in Cuba. And she's on our, our, our FBI's Most Wanted, or more recently, if you want to, uh, our, our colleague, Carlos Costa, Armando Alejandre, Mario de la Peña, and Paolo Morales. These were American citizens and a U.S. legal permanent resident who were shot out of the sky. These men were on a civilian humanitarian mission trying to save people from dying in the Caribbean, shot down by a, the military uh, air force. That, that family is waiting for justice still. But what Maria does over at Cuba Archive and Free Society Project, her and her team are an essential part of that justice process because it is a part of healing. Being able to bear witness and uh, tell the story is an, out, an important outlet. And these families never give up. I've never seen a family give up on a loved one who's been killed or a victim 
uh, you and I both know many of uh, these patriots like Armando Valladares and so many other political prisoners who are still who are still with us, Oscar Bisset, uh, uh, Antunes, and so many others who served 10, 15, 20 years in a prison for no other reason because of their beliefs. And these people are still fighting in their own ways. And what you're doing there at Free uh, Society Project Cuba Archives is giving a voice and and creating a, a testimony there that hopefully they'll be picked up and used again when Cuba begins that process. Yes, I think it's really important that people learn about this. Like a lot of people don't even know that the first US ambassador killed in office was killed by terrorists sponsored by Cuba and Guatemala City in 1968. Right. I mean, I could give you a lot of other information. You know, the Puerto Rican terrorists who killed Americans who bombed cities, you know, were sponsored by Cuba, financed by Cuba. This is all really important because that's the regime we're dealing with. So how can you help? You can help by learning about this, uh, by, of course, supporting us financially because we really need it, but also by disseminating the information, by being part of our distribution list. We send a monthly newsletter on different, you know, projects related to Cuba and to understand that, you know, we cannot accept this government as a normal government because this government attempts against the security of our country and the region too. This is not just reduced to Cuba. This has enormous implications for our region. Um, And I think people need to be informed with facts, not with editorializing, you know, but there's a lot of backup on that. And that's what we're trying to do. And especially in English. Go ahead. No, that especially we try to work in English because a lot of- Yeah, you do. Yeah, it's all in English. Yep. It not, does not penetrate sort of like the non-Spanish speaking audience. Well, we, we will share um, all these links with, our, with, the, with the listeners on the podcast uh, show so folks can access it. Maria, it's been a great talking with you about this. I know we could have kept going because we've had many conversations that have been longer than this. And I, I hope that we can do this again, especially pick up with the medical missions. And thank you so much for what you're doing and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. Um, and thank you for all you're doing and to your listeners for their time and, and support. Bye. Take Have care. Bye-bye. Bye.